Well, go ahead and have a seat. Uh, praise be to God indeed. In fact, I feel like I've been praising God for a lot of things uh, recently. One of them, actually, just over the last few days is uh, uh, Andrew, as part of uh, his role, uh, made up something that I want you to specifically take notice of. Um, he's actually created a Spotify playlist uh, for us to be uh, a singing people, to be a more worshipful people. So uh, especially if maybe uh, you're new to this church and haven't uh, heard some of the songs that we sang this morning, that's going to be a great resource for us. Uh, we're going to be learning some of the same songs just throughout the week. You can use those as a part of your uh, family worship and leading uh, yourself to worship on the way to uh, work in the mornings, everything else. But uh, if you're wanting to know and to be able uh, just to uh, sing sing along with this church, that's a great resource. So make sure to uh, go ahead and get that, subscribe to it, uh, Spotify, go do it. It's going to be really good. Um, I ask that you stay in Acts chapter 13. Uh, we're going to be a little bit all over that chapter, and, and I hope that you uh, saw the email earlier this week that actually gave you Acts chapter 13 as the uh, chapter that we're reading and everything, because sometimes the, just that context of the things that we can't quite get to on a Sunday morning is going to be really, really helpful to understand uh, some of the preaching. And so make sure to take notice of what passage we're going to be in each week. Um, if I could get the timer on back there, I'm going to pay attention to it today. Praise Jesus. All right. Um, Here's something that I wanted to start off with, and it's a little bit of an anecdote. I, I wonder if you've ever been around somebody who experiences blindness, or at least uh, who experiences a lot of like distress with vision, just things aren't very uh, clear to them. Uh, I, I really honestly think that of all of the senses, all of the senses that you could just lose or be impaired with, that one has to be the one that we take most for granted. Um, I, I've uh, actually had several chances at uh, being at schools for the blind over the course of my life, uh, from when I was very young until just a few years ago. Um, and I just think that, like, uh, losing your taste would be, like, awful, but I think you, you could make it. And uh, uh, losing a sense of smell would kind of be right in there with, like, taste, I think, a little bit. Those two things are so closely related. Obviously, being deaf would be, like, very, very difficult. But there's something about vision. There's something about vision that I think that we just must, we have to take for granted. I remember uh, being in grammar school in Taiwan, and the grammar school that I was a part of actually had a partnership with a school for the blind there. And, and I have really fond memories of actually having field days with that school, having lunches with that school. I just remember uh, a sense of gratitude, even as like a little kid, a sense of fondness and connection, a sense of relationship with a few kids who were experiencing blindness that uh, just I remember to this day. Is very, that experience was uh, just other. It was set apart. I'll never forget it. Uh, a few years ago, this church actually took a mission trip to Ethiopia. We've taken a few trips uh, here and there. But when we were in Ethiopia, the resources are just so uh, different, and that country is so large that there are boarding schools uh, because there's just no way for, like, individual towns and villages to have resources for kids who uh, experience blindness. And in addition to that, the culture there, that is, uh, it's, it's seen a little bit as a pox 
on the house. Like just to have a child with, uh, with blindness is something that's obviously really significant. And so what they'll do is they'll, they'll send their children away. And we went and we visited uh, a school specifically for girls who experience blindness. And I believe that I was told, I could be wrong about this, but I believe that I was told that it was the one school for uh, girls who experience blindness in the entire country. So the girls who were there were obviously experiencing a lot of distress, but it was also a really amazing and joyful place. It, it was a place where uh, the girls would come up and take you by the hand uh, so that y'all could go to the next thing. When we would go and uh, visit the different classrooms or bunkhouses or whatever, they'd be singing like you've just never heard singing before and dancing like you've never seen people dance before. It was very, very interesting, and it was just a touching experience. I wonder if you've ever... Uh, if you've ever experienced that, if you've ever been around somebody who experiences blindness and just uh, come to terms with that, created uh, just a virtue of, or fostered a virtue of like humility and gratefulness in you. I wonder if that's been something that you have also experienced. Sight is a gift and the thought of blindness is more than just a little frightening for us. Last night I was actually having a, a discussion with Michael Reck. He's a pilot, and he was talking about how important sight is because uh, there are t two ways that you can kind of uh, fly, fly a plane. I'm sure that I'm messing some of this up, but you can fly, fly by sight. You can, if it's clear weather, you're coming in for a landing, you can fly by what you see. But if you're in inclement weather, if there's, you know, fog, if there's snow, if there's, you know, if you're flying in the clouds, he said that, uh, I think that I'm right in this, that like the average pilot who trusts sight in cloud flying is like two minutes in simulators and otherwise, like two minutes, because you just can't trust what your body feels. And then when you can't see anything, it's a very dangerous situation. You have to, he said, his words, trust what you can see either visually out the window or if you're flying in inclement weathers, you have to trust what you can see on the instruments. You really must be able to see. You must what, know in your heart of hearts what you need to be looking at. Why? It's because blindness is inherently dangerous. Blindness is inherently dangerous. Physical blindness actually uh, creates danger just in everyday things. Crossing a street if you're blind is a very dangerous thing. That's common sense. We know that. We, we see that. We see people with uh, dogs that are actually trained to help them do everyday tasks because an everyday task to the rest of us can be very dangerous if you're blind. Or maybe you do have sight, but you're just looking at the wrong thing. It can be not just dangerous, it can be deadly. What we find here in Acts chapter 13 is that it tells us that there are things that make us spiritually blind and they are spiritually deadly. What we find in Acts chapter 13 is that those specifically who are blinded by something, blinded by envy, those who are blinded by envy will only be able to see corruption. That's the words that are actually just taken straight out of the passage. Those blinded by envy will only see corruption, but those enlightened, those who can see by faith, will see freedom. So if you're a note taker this morning, that's kind of where we're going. Those blinded by envy will only see corruption, and those enlightened by faith will see freedom. Where am, where am I kind of seeing that? Go with me. Uh, there in verse 1 it says, uh, Now there were at the church in Antioch prophets and priests, uh, sorry, prophets and teachers. 
And then it gives us a list of those people who are there. Now, here's what we need to understand is that uh, Acts is jumping around a little bit for us. It had been in Antioch. Now uh, it went back last chapter to Peter, um, and uh, they were in Jerusalem. And so we spent some time in Jerusalem. Now we're back. We're back to Antioch. And what we find there is a group of leaders. What does it say that they were doing? It says that they were praying. They were praying and fasting. What we see is that this growing church in Antioch is a diverse church. And some of these people that we read about are pretty familiar. We see uh, Barnabas right off the get-go. It says, uh, in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius, of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. That's the cast of characters that we kind of get. We, we see uh, Barnabas. Barnabas was likely uh, just an older guy. He probably came from actually a kind of wealthy family because we're told a few chapters ago that he actually took some of the land that he would have owned from his family, sold it, and took those proceeds and put, them, put it at the apostles' feet. So he's probably an older guy. Younger people might not have owned land. Uh, we, we see that guy. We've already seen him before. We know that his name means son of encouragement. We know that he was sacrificial. But we also see another character. This is someone who's new, Simeon. Simeon was called uh, uh, Niger. Uh, now, you can, we can see right there in the Word that uh, we're going to see that this is a different person, okay? This is someone that we haven't seen before, but it was likely a black man. It was someone who had come into the faith, part of this faith community, what we're seeing is that the early church was actually a missional church, and that in Antioch, that some of the people that were maybe around the periphery of uh, the people there in that large city were just attracted to the gospel. It attracted a diverse group of people. In fact, uh, my, my uh, just curiosity wonders, man, I wonder if this guy was just there. I wonder if he was just in Antioch. He had just been, uh, he'd gone there for trade or something like that. Here's where my curiosity gets piqued a little bit. I kind of wonder whether or not this is a disciple of that Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch goes back to Ethiopia, uh, tells some people about it. I mean, and, and so we just end up with Simeon there in Antioch. We're not really told, so I can't tell you that it was or wasn't, but it just it makes me wonder. I wonder where these are, people are coming from because we see the very next person, Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene is actually in North Africa, so we get a totally different people group. The gospel had attracted some diversity fairly quickly in Antioch, and we get this sense that, man, this church is really shaping up. I wonder, I wonder what it was comprised of. I wonder who the people were. These are people that are like literally in our spiritual lineage. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's talking about people that, that Jesus made an impact on. These apostles preached the gospel to, and they came in to this gospel community, and they were brothers and sisters in Christ. We will rejoice one day in heaven with them. That's just such a miraculous, like amazing thing that is happening here. And I kind of wonder, well, I wonder what kind of classes of people were kind of mixed in here. Was it just kind of the fringes? Was it kind of the lowly uh, groups of people that were just attracted to the gospel because of its inclusivity? No, we're told right in the next page, uh, page uh, Menaean a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. We know of some of the Herods. This is Herod the Tetrarch from one generation before. We would have known and understood that this man would have had some power, some influence, just by simply being a lifelong friend of Herod. 
He was likely a Roman citizen. So we don't just see that the gospel is attracting like uh, certain types of racial groups or like uh, socioeconomic groups. There's just lots of people that are coming to know Jesus in this church, and that's encouraging. And then there's just Saul. You know Saul. No need to like expand on that. We've already introduced him in Acts. So you get Barnabas and Saul, and it says this, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have prepared for them. So they were actually just worshiping the Lord, just like we are here today. I want you to get that view in your mind. They were just praying. They were gathered together to worship together. And the Holy Spirit just speaks to them. Man, I, I hope that we become the church like that, that's just so filled with faith that we're, we're gathering together and we're praying. We're not just praying like upwardly, but uh, the Holy Spirit's actually like speaking back to us. That would be just incredible. And what the Holy Spirit does here is he's actually clarifying the mission of God. He's saying, hey, I want you to set apart these two men because I have plans for them. So what do they do? What do they do? What's their response? Look there in verses 3 and 4. They just kind of immediately respond by continuing to pray and fast. So they, they're, they're looking at these two guys. They're probably some of their best leaders, and they're like, maybe we didn't hear them right. We're going to send out like some of our best guys. Okay, let's pray. Let's fast about this. And they respond. They respond. This is huge. The Holy Spirit is clarifying his mission, so they fast and they pray. They laid their hands on them, and they sent them out. Why? Because the early church was on a mission. They were on a mission. They, they had this mission that was given to them earlier on in Acts. Jesus tells them, I want you to go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's the mission that they're on. And then when they look at the direction of the Holy Spirit right here, which tells them to do something that had to have been difficult. Some of their best friends, some of their best leaders, and they're going to send them out. Why? Because they're on God's mission. They were a mission-minded group of people. And, and here's what I kind of read between the lines in all of this. I, I see that the early church was mission-minded, but I, I want to pull out some specific parts because you're like, man, I've heard of mission. I've read those books. I hear you know, churches in Acts 29, my favorite pastors, are always talking about mission, but it's kind of still vague to me. What is it? What I see is, is that the mission-minded church is motivated first and foremost by worship. If you want to know how to be a part of a mission-minded church, if you want for City Church to be a mission-minded church, you don't start by doing. Do you get that? You don't start by like just going out and doing stuff. You don't go repair a fence. You don't get started by like making a meal, building a relationship. You start in worship. What were these men doing when the Holy Spirit shows up to clarify the mission that they're on? They're praying, they're fasting. The mission-minded church is motivated by worship. But it also, the mission-minded church sacrifice is in sins. They sacrifice some of their best leaders and they send them out. And what do they do immediately after? If you've been reading with us, you know exactly what they do. They go and they share the truth. It's the first thing that they do. They go and share the truth. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went, and when they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed 
the word of God. They go and they share the truth. The mission-minded church is motivated by worship, sacrifices and sins, and shares the word of God, shares the truth. Why? Because we're living in a world that is surrounded by blindness. We're living in a world that's surrounded by blindness. And guess what? The gospel is going far. It's going wide. We're already told that it's going down to the lowly. But what we're about to see here in this passage is is that it's also going up. Verse 6. Read it with me. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named bar Jesus. So they're, they're going out, they're going uh, far and wide, they're going down, and then they come across this guy who's called a magician, and a magician at this time wasn't David Blaine, okay? It wasn't Siegfried and Roy, although I, I don't think Roy's still around. So it wasn't like Siegfried. It's not like, uh, it's not like uh, Chris Angel. That guy was kind of lame. Remember, he was like around for like a few months there, and you're like, God, this guy... I don't know about it. That's not the kind of magician that we're talking about, okay? That's not the kind of magician that this guy is, this bar Jesus is. He's a false prophet. What, what would have happened at that time is, is that there would have been a council of people that, uh, that uh, rich and powerful people, especially people that were involved in ruling, surrounded themselves with a group of people that helped them make decisions. And a lot of those people would have had uh, people like fortune tellers and, you know, people that just had a connection with uh, something else out there, a connection with the universe. And those people were supposed to be there to just kind of help them understand what decisions needed to be made. And this guy, Bar-Jesus, false prophet, Jewish, he's a magician. He's relying on something else out there to serve someone. Who is he serving? He's serving the proconsul there, serving a powerful man named Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus, we're told here, is a man of intelligence who then summoned, because he's intelligent, decided, you know, I might not be getting the best uh, word from this Bar-Jesus guy. I'm going to summon Barnabas and Saul. I I hear that they're saying something different. I want to hear about it. Why? Because he sought to hear the word. Do you see that in that passage? He sought to hear the word. As they were going along, they were telling everybody this word of God. He wanted to know about it too. But what happens is the magician, this Elemas, opposes them. He uses the word, opposes them. He sought to turn them away from the faith. Why? Because it's, it's important that we understand that when we evangelize, not if, but like when we evangelize, there are going to be people who are actually actively opposing you. When you're going out in your uh, participation on God's mission, there are going to be people who oppose you. And Bar-Jesus, Elemas, was one of them. Why would he do that? Why, why would he do that? Well, it's the same reason why people oppose uh, modern day. I remember uh, uh, being uh, very active in evangelism, especially in college. Uh, I, had a really, uh, I have a really good friend named uh, Adam Casburn. One of the most gifted people that I know in evangelism. He just doesn't have that, like, fear of man thing. He's going to tell you about Jesus. He wants you to know about Jesus. And he and I would partner together, and we'd go out, and we'd share the gospel. One night, I'm at a party, and there's a young lady there, 
And the Holy Spirit just anoints a time. I don't remember if it was a specific question that she asked or something else, but I remember very specifically thinking, man, she needs the gospel. And, and she's even like inviting and asking about it. And we're sitting there talking and uh, her boyfriend comes over. And I don't think he was jealous that she was talking to me. I don't think that he felt very threatened by me. But you know what he did feel threatened by? He felt threatened by the gospel. Because he had plans that night. And he made them very specifically known that he had plans that night. And they involved her. And here I am sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what he knew? He knew that there was something in the gospel that was going to take something that he wanted away in that moment. And I mean, he all but like pulled her away from that conversation. Why? Why do people want the gospel? Why do they oppose the gospel? Why is Bar-Jesus opposing the gospel here? It's because the magician had a pretty sweet gig. He was, he was advising this guy. He was sitting at his table. This pro-council, just being near him, would have given him some notoriety. It would have, he would have had some impact on policy. He would have had some level of power and influence. People wouldn't have messed with him. They would have been like, hey, that's the pro-council's guy. He's on his council. That's why he's a pro. He's a pro-council. He's got like this group of pro-council people, and he's a part of it. Don't mess with that guy. He's a magician. He had a pretty sweet gig going on. And what the magician understood, what he understood, I'm convinced, because he knew that it, it, Luke goes through all of the trouble of mentioning that he was a Jewish false prophet, is that he knew that this word of God, this word of God would replace him, that it would make him obsolete. What was the magician? The magician was envious. He was filled with envy of the attention and favor that Barnabas and Saul were getting, and that led him to fear that he would become obsolete. It's the same motivation that the guy at the party felt. He knew that the word of the Lord was going to change something. It was going to rearrange something in his girlfriend, and he couldn't let that happen. He knew that he couldn't let that happen. So here's the question for us, like, how do you deal with someone who's opposing the gospel out of envy? How do you deal with, do you deal with them, like, lovingly, with, like, tender care? Uh, that's not what Paul does. That's not what Paul does. Look, look at this with me. This is just great, because it's just so, like, uh, the fear of man, I think, is just, like, infiltrated the church. Like, we're just not effective evangelists, because we think that we're supposed to be nice. Is Paul nice? What does he do? There in verse 9, filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's nothing in Paul that's like causing him to be angry or mean-spirited or unkind. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looks at him intently, and he says, You son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, full of deceit and all villainy, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Oh, that's not nice. It's not like comfortable. Like if you're, think about it. I want you to put yourself there. Let's say that you're Barnabas. You're standing there. And this magician's trying to like, you know, uh, usurp whatever's going on. And then all of a sudden, the guy that you're with goes, you son of the devil. Like, can you imagine, like, today, you're with somebody, and they're obviously trying to, like, oppose the gospel, 
and some Christian friend of yours says something like that. Maybe, maybe Paul's got it right. And it's not just because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe there are times where Christians need to know and understand there's opposition to the gospel, it's filled with pride and arrogance, and you give law to the proud. You, you confront this envy in people with a backbone of full-throatedness to call sin what is sin. Maybe that's what we're supposed to be doing. I don't know. I think that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to make those judgment calls, but I don't think that it's the goal of Christians just to be nice and kind of go around and treat everybody and just with complete kick gloves because I think that some people, some people need this kind of direction. Paul is essentially saying to this man, your envy tried to blind the proconsul, but it has actually blinded you. And pay attention to the words here. I just think that that's interesting. He says that he's going to be physically blinded to the sun. So, so here's what's actually happening in a spiritual sense. He's trying to obscure, he's trying to keep away from the proconsul a view of the Son of God. And what Paul says is, you're going to be blinded now. Blind. Blind from what? He goes, Paul, I mean, Luke is pretty specific here. He, he records the words, you're going to be blind from the sun for a time. There's a little bit of grace, I think, in just saying for a time. There's a little bit of grace in saying, hey, you're going to be blind from the sun so that you and others might see the Son of God. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed. He believed. He had faith. Why? Why did he have faith? The verse tells us when he saw what had occurred. He wasn't blind. He was astonished. He saw what had occurred. Paul stands there, sees this magician trying to usurp and oppose, tries to bring some seed of doubt, and Paul goes after him and says, you're not going to see. He's blinded. He's groping about trying to be led by the hand, and this proconsul sees it, and he believes why? Because he saw the power of God. He saw it, and he was astonished. But, but that's not the only uh, picture that we get in these passages. If we then skip over Paul's uh, preaching, we actually see a second group of people that responds in much the same way. Paul and Barnabas part ways with John, not on bad terms. John just is going back to Jerusalem. Maybe he's feeling called back there. Maybe he's got some things to tend to there. But they continue on their way, and they're going along from city to city. And as they go, they're attending synagogues. And at one particular synagogue in one particular city, after the reading in that synagogue, they were asked to share a word of encouragement. And what did they do? They preached the gospel. And, and we'll go through what that gospel was, but they had so much favor with this small group of Jews and several devout uh, converts that they followed them after the preaching. They couldn't get enough of it. I guarantee you that Paul was preaching for a long time, and they're hearing all of these things, and they just can't get enough of it, and they're like following Paul and Barnabas out of this synagogue. They're trying to get more. What happens? The next week, almost the entire city, not just the Jews, not just the devout people, the entire city turns out to hear what these men have to say. They're hearing about this proconsul. They're hearing from town to town. They're hearing the word from these Jews, and everybody wants to hear about it. 
And you know what? It's a problem. It's a big problem. What does it say? But that's when the Jews saw the crowds. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? What? Jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. They were envious of all of the attention. Here they were, just this small group of Jews in this, you know, probably medium-sized town. They've been there for years. They've built a synagogue. It's probably generations old now at this point. Nobody's really paying attention to the Jews in this town. All of a sudden, this Paul and Barnabas uh, get invited just to share a word, and the entire city comes to hear what they have to say. And they're filled with envy. They're filled with jealousy. Again, envy has gone about the work of blinding. And what does it say? It says they opposed and contradicted the teaching. Why? Because they knew that it would take away from their own sweet gig, their own power, their own prestige. Why? Why does the gospel provoke envy? It's kind of a strange word. Can we be honest about it? Like, you probably heard earlier when I was telling you what we found in this passage, and I used the word envy, and you're like, it's a strange word. Why are we talking about envy this morning? It's because that's what's happening here. But why does the gospel provoke envy? How do we know that it does? What is it about Jesus that causes this kind of reaction? The magician, the Jews, were spiritually blinded by their own envy. But even though they were blind, they could see just enough. They could see just enough that this Jesus, this Word of God, was going to be a problem. That's what they knew. Why? Well, I'm going to skip over. You don't have to follow with me, but we're going to skip over to uh, Matthew chapter 27 real quick. And I just want to read very briefly uh, five verses that help us get our arms around this. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So Jesus is in police custody, okay? And the feast of the governor normally happens about once a, week, uh, once a year, and it was accustomed to just release one prisoner back to the people because he was probably known for putting lots of people in jail. And some of those people... Were, they shouldn't have been in jail. The people wanted them back. And when they had, um, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barnabas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want for me to release for you? Barnabas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Have you ever thought about that? Why was Jesus arrested? Why did the Jews not like Jesus? Would you have ever used the word envy? Pilate does. Pilate knows that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd. Why did they have to persuade the crowd? They persuaded the crowd for Barnabas and to destroy Jesus. That's what they're trying to do. This envy has caused them to take an insurrectionist back. Barnabas was like a notorious guy. He wasn't a kind guy. And the elders had to literally go, the chief priests had to go person by person and say, hey, listen, here's what we're doing here. Everybody needs to get on the same team. We don't want Jesus back. We want Barnabas. 
And there had to have been a few people there that were like, really, Barnabas? Like, he was causing a lot of strife. What is it that could cause these chief priests, these elders, to go to those kinds of lengths to destroy Jesus? It's envy. Pilate saw it. We see it today. It's envy. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. It wasn't something wrong that Jesus did. Jesus was righteous. Even the wife of Pilate knows it. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's lacking in nothing. He's complete. He's holy. Don't have anything to do with that man. But they wanted to destroy Jesus because when the human heart confronts the reality of Jesus, it knows that things cannot remain the same. When you come into contact with Jesus, you cannot remain the same. Jesus demands that we put down our pretend powers and faithfully follow Him to freedom. Those fake powers, those pretend powers that this magician had, those like insignificant little trinket kinds of things, I don't know what he was doing. Was he looking at the stars? Maybe he had a demon. Maybe he was communicating. Maybe he had some amount of real power, but in comparison to the power of Jesus Christ, it's pretend. He's just pretending that he has powers. When you come up against Jesus, you have to put down those pretend powers. The magician, the false prophet, his power was nothing. The chief priests, the elders, they had position and authority, but their power really in comparison to Jesus was nothing. You got to put them down when you come into contact with Jesus and you have to faithfully follow Jesus to freedom. It takes faith to put down the nets of your life. When Jesus comes along the road and he sees the fishermen there who were soon to become his disciples, he says, put down your nets. Come with me. I'll teach you to be fishers of men. They had to make a decision in that moment to leave their livelihood. That's not insignificant. It would be like today. Someone coming and saying, hey, leave your job and follow me. And for a lot of us, we go, man, please. Like, I'd love to do that. But think about it. This was like their, this was what they were trained to do. They didn't go to college. There wasn't like, you know, uh, I don't know, monster.com. I don't know what the job boards were, but they weren't around. You did what your father did. You likely learned a trade. These men would have been giving up quite a lot. They were asked to faithfully put down the nets of their life and to follow this man Jesus because that's what he does. You got to put down your pretend powers. You've got to faithfully follow Jesus to freedom. How, how do we faithfully follow to freedom? Where, where am I getting that in the text? Where am I getting that in the text? Maybe you read with me this week and you, you're like, I know, I see it. I see where there's freedom in this text. Let me ask you a question. Who would you have loved to hear preach? You ever thought about that? Who would you have loved to hear preach? Uh, obviously, we'd all have loved to have been there at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, knowing who Jesus is and everything, we would have loved to hear him. Maybe you're like Lloyd-Jones. You're like, I can listen to him, but the audio is pretty bad, and I just would love to hear him. Maybe it's Spurgeon. You're just like, hey, the Prince of Preachers, love to hear that guy. For a lot of us, though, we've got to think, man, I'd love to hear Paul preach. And here, as near as I can make out, Paul preaches for the first time in Acts. He'd probably done plenty of it before. 
this is the first time that we're really getting some of the longer form preaching. And I'm sure that he preached a lot more than what is just recorded here, but uh, he's asked for a word of encouragement, and he goes after him. And he begins with, in a familiar place with his Jewish hearers. He says, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And then he goes on to say, God chose us, and he made us many in the land of Egypt. We became a, a big group of people. And then with uplifted arm, he gives us this like uh, illustration of, uh, of Moses lifting up his arms over uh, the sea and it parting. He says, with ar- uplifted arm, let us out. He led us through the wilderness and into the promised land. God gave us judges and prophets and kings, and everybody would have, would have been tracking with him. They would have said, this was a good idea. This guy's he's preaching it good. We're, we're Jews. We're hearing this for the, you know, like billionth time. This guy's legitimate. And then he takes a little bit of a turn. He says, and he promised King David that a Messiah would come for his people. Paul's now starting to venture into uncharted territory with this group of Jews and devout people, and he said, he's come. They hadn't heard about him. This group of Jews in this middle-sized town in this small synagogue, they hadn't heard the news. They knew the rest of that story. They knew that David had a promised one who was coming, and they figured that they would have heard about it before now because they were expecting a conqueror. They were expecting this large king to come in, sweep through everything, and he's saying, Paul is saying, he's come. From the line of David, he has come, a savior, and he's got a name. This would have been the first time that these people would have heard about Jesus. I bet that you could have heard a pin drop. Would have been thinking, you're you're saying that the Messiah has come? I feel like I would have heard about this. How do you know? And Paul bets that even though they haven't heard of Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, they haven't heard about this man named Jesus, they definitely heard about John the Baptist. You've heard about John the Baptist, Paul says. He says, John the Baptist proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And they would have said, yeah, we heard about that guy. We, we, yeah, of course we heard about that guy. We heard about him because he was telling Jews that they needed to get clean. They needed to go and wash in this proselytic baptism that would have been for people that were not Jews to be purified, to come out of the water purified. They would have needed to be circumcised. They would have needed to come in to the family of Israel. We heard about that guy because he was saying that we needed that. Even more, even if they didn't hear about that, they would have heard that there was a prophet because there weren't too many prophets. There was this gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There weren't too many people. There was like silence from God for a little while, and here this guy comes, and he's got weird clothing on, and he's eating weird things. He's out in the, he's saying strange things. We heard about that guy. We heard about John the Baptist. We heard about him. We heard about how he was killed. And Paul assumes the word must have gotten around. Because John the Baptist, he says, said this to these people. He said, what do you suppose that I am? You're thinking that I'm the, the, cho- the chosen one, I'm the, I'm the Messiah. I'm not he. But behold, after me is coming one whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. Paul's trying to fill them in. He's taking little bits of the story that they know, and he's trying to fill them in to the complete story 
so that they can know and hear the message. What does he say? He's come. To us has been sent the message of salvation. He's saying Jesus is the Messiah and salvation has come. He has a name. His name is Jesus. That's what Paul's telling this group of Jews is that everything that we've been waiting for has already happened. I'll bet you could have heard a pin drop. What does he say in verse 27? He says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize, they did not see, nor did they understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled, by, uh, fulfilled them by condemning him. They said that they're fulfilling, these Jews in Jerusalem fulfilled all of the things that were said about them by condemning this Jesus. And they found, and though they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from the Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses. Why? Because they saw him. They were witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. That word corruption is going to be important here in just a second. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Why? For David, after he had served the purposes of God to, in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He died. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man's forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I'll bet you could have heard a pin drop. Why? Because Paul is sitting here saying, listen, all of these things that we've been waiting for, everything that you've heard about from the prophets is fulfilled in this man, Jesus. All of these prophets, all of our, even King David, at the end of the time, of his appointed time, he died. He was done. He saw the corruption. But this Jesus was raised from the dead. You want to think that those people weren't listening at that point? Wait, so you're telling me that the Messiah died and rose from the grave, they're hearing it for the first time. But God told us what he was going to do. You will not let your Holy One see that corruption. Paul ventures from the known into this uncharted territory. He tells them about John the Baptist. He uses John the Baptist to continue on with his preaching, and he says then, Paul ends this message of warning. He warns them that there is corruption, that those people who do not see Jesus, 
those people who are blinded, those people who allow their envy to blind them, they will see corruption, they will see death. But if, if, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, he didn't see corruption, and you won't either. That's the message of the gospel that Paul preaches to them. And it's the message of the gospel that finds us today. Paul ends with a word of warning of corruption. He says, they didn't recognize him, nor did they understand him. They didn't see him. They didn't get him. They didn't understand the prophets. Why? Well, we already covered this. What did they do? They conspired with the rulers to be executed. That, that group of people was blinded by the envy that they had. Those, the, both, both times, okay? So when Jesus is put on the cross, what was it that put him there? It was the envy of the rulers. Now, what happens right after Paul's message? There's this envy. There's this desire to hold on to and to keep power. It's corruption. And Paul says, it's going to lead to your death. back with me. If you let envy blind you, you'll see corruption. If you let your Instagram feed, feed heart lies to yourself, desire for what other people have, desire for beauty in self, it'll lead to corruption. It'll lead to death. But there is also a message of freedom. Verse 27, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Verse 36 says that even when David saw corruption, even though he saw corruption, Jesus didn't see it. Why? Because he was raised from the grave. Verse 38 says that through this man's forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. If you faithfully follow Jesus, you will see freedom. Freedom from what? Look at verse 38. This is where we're ending today. Look at verse 38. What are you freed from? Somebody say it. What are you freed from? Everything. Oh, man. That's the gospel. You're freed from everything through this one man's forgiveness of sins, through this Jesus' forgiveness of sins. You're freed from everything. What does everything include? It includes everything. It includes all things. What does it exclude? Nothing. I wonder this morning for you, I wonder if you know that. I wonder if you know that in your heart of hearts. I wonder if you experience true freedom. Uh, Ephesians talks about eyes of heart. It's a, it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. No, I thought that I saw with my eyes. No, no, no. Paul tells the Ephesians, you see with your heart. You see the things that your heart desires, those longings, those affections. You're seeing something. Your gaze is on something. If it's filled with envy, what are you seeing? You're seeing corruption and death. If you're seeing Jesus, if you're seeing Jesus, there is freedom. If the eyes of your heart are desiring Jesus, if you're seeing Jesus, 
there's freedom. Freedom from what? Everything. Everything. Freedom from your past. Freedom from that thing that you said to someone that you just can't get out, you can't forgive yourself for. Freedom from the poor job that you feel like you're doing. Uh, freedom from uh, feeling like you're not doing enough to like just serve Jesus. Yes, freedom from even that. Freedom from what you've stolen. Freedom from what you've lied about. Freedom from the secret parts of your heart that despise another, that hate another. Freedom from that. Is there anything that weighs you down? Is there any secret sin that holds you back? Is there anything in your past that you just feel like you have not been able to overcome? You. Who does Jesus free? He frees you. What has he freed you from? He frees you from everything. Through this man's forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. All you need to do is look at Jesus. Have faith in Jesus, and you will experience freedom. Let's pray. God and Father, you have made a way for freedom. God and Father, we do not experience it all of the time. We feel held back. Our bodies work against us. Our fl flesh tempts us to sin. Your enemy seeks to destroy. The lies that we believe seek to uh, pull us away from you. But you have made provision in Christ for freedom from everything. Father, I pray that this church would experience freedom. I pray that City Church would be a place that is free. Father, not with a cheap freedom, not with a patriotic freedom, not with uh, some weird sense of like I, that freedom is doing whatever I want. Freedom is following the Savior that we must. Father, allow for us to be free, free indeed. God and Father, as we turn our attention to respond by faith, as we are just faithfully following Jesus and what he's told us to do over the next few moments, I pray that you would change hearts. I pray that you would allow for us to pray together, to sing together, to take communion together, both here in this room and also at home, uh, in uh, drives to work. Father, I pray that you would make us a free people in the gospel. And I pray it in the powerful freedom giver's name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.